Ugly Duckling Oboes is dedicated to the development of young oboe players. They provide quality handmade oboe reads, private lessons, and high-quality oboe sales, rentals, and consignments. The oboes that they rent are conservatory mechanism oboes that include the left-hand F key and low B-flat key. All are maintained by oboe-specific technicians. In-person lessons are available as well as virtual lessons for students who live outside the geographic area or have transportation and scheduling challenges. They also offer online college audition coaching for high school juniors and seniors who plan to audition to be music majors. Visit UglyDucklingOboes.com for more details on how you can set up yourself for success and sign up for their newsletter. That's UglyDucklingOboes.com. Consider buying your processed oboe and bassoon cane from those friendly folks over at Barton Cane. Processed with care and precision for your everyday reed-making needs. Take the pain and injury out of reed-making by letting Barton Cane do the hard, repetitive, boring stuff. Free up time for practicing happy hours, hikes, baking, and spending time with friends and family. Barton Cane, here for you. Visit www.bartoncane.com. Hi, I'm Galit Kaunitz. And I'm Jackie Wilson. And you're listening to Double Read Dish, a podcast for oboists, bassoonists, and the people who love them. Long time no see. Well, don't you look rested and rejuvenated? I just got back from a weekend in Spokane, which if you're not from Washington is literally like 90 minutes away. <laughs> but it's where Chris and I started dating. Because uh, being back at WSU is obviously I've talked about it's where I'm from. But it's also uh, I did my undergrad at Eastern Washington University, which is where Chris and I met. And I was a live-in nanny to my bassoon teacher for three years, which maybe we'll get into that uh, sometime. <laughs> but um, so Spokane's like our own stopping grounds, and that's where we like fell in love and got engaged. And so Spokane holds a special place in our heart. And it's so it's Chris's turning forty tomorrow, actually on Valentine's Day, and uh, it was like his. He laughs at me when I say it's his dream, but it was his like birthday wish to eat this type of steak that's called a tomahawk <laughs> steak. And I don't really know what makes it so great. I know it's big and like it has a big bone and I think it's two types of steaks at the same time. I don't know. Someone is screaming at the podcast right now, the correct answer, but it was like he's seen it online on all these like steak instagrams i don't know and he wanted to try it and the last time we went it was not there so anyway he got to try it sorry to all the vegetarian listeners and uh <laughs> that's that's what we did but it was actually really rejuvenating and uh i had a great practice session this morning and yeah it's just been a good way to start the week not trying to brag <laughs> <laughs> that sounds wonderful I'm happy for you and happy birthday, Chris. So what's on the what's on the docket today for our dish topic, girl? Well, I felt inspired because 
I was thinking about something for next year. And I don't know about you, but at WSU, we have to kind of think about the recitals that we want to schedule around this time of the year because, you know, the the ensemble directors start to figure out when next year's concerts are. And so it's around this time that you start to think about, okay, what is next year going to hold for me performing-wise? And we've got a couple conference proposals out or I do and this and that. And I was kind of taking stock of my year and I went, my year is full. Mm -hmm. Like, holy cow, somehow my 2023-2024 academic year is like pretty, (laughs) pretty full. And um, I have been trying, and I know I've spoken about it on the podcast before, but I've been trying to Keep in mind that I never know when to say when and Mm -hmm. that opportunities will come on my plate and I will go, yes, that all sounds fabulous, but I will never leave room on the plate for something new and cool to descend. And when it does, Mm -hmm. inevitably, I want to create space for it and I start to feel overwhelmed and burned out and all of those things that if I had just kept in mind, like you don't have to cram everything in Jackie, like leave some space. And so anyway, I'm super excited about everything that's happening this year, but just kind of realizing how much I had already said yes to when I had already purposed to say no, made me go, mm-hmm. we should talk about this on the podcast because if I'm struggling with it, uh, probably others are too, or maybe I can learn from lessons that others have learned. So I don't know if you have any thoughts on this topic. Well, I don't know if I have any advice to offer because I, I'm a perpetuator of yes, yes, I'd love to do that. Yes, I'd love to do that. Yes, I'd love to do that. <laughs> find myself completely underwater. It's really hard. I mean, especially when we love what we do and you're like, yeah, of course I want to play that repertoire. Yeah, of course I want to play with that person. Yes, of course I want to, you know, have this cool experience and that cool experience. And then all of a sudden you look at your calendar, you're like, I really don't know how I'm going to do that. Yeah. And even like sometimes I'll find like, oh, the hours and the days wise, it's fine. But repertoire wise, just wrapping myself around this, this many pieces And sometimes I'll say yes, and everything will be fine. But like a friend will be like, okay, and so like, do you want to come over for a barbecue? And I'll be like, I don't have time for a barbecue. I've got to prepare for this and that. And like, I maybe have time for all my professional engagements, but I didn't leave time to stop and smell the roses at all, you know? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, I've got nothing. I've got nothing. (laughs) Yeah, in terms of consequences of saying no, I don't think that I have had like consequent like I don't think I have ever had something horrible happen because I've said no to something well no I mean that's essentially the lesson that we're talking about is it's all in our minds yes like no people understand or they move on to the net okay I'll just ask someone else yeah fine but in the moment it's like you feel guilty you feel shameful you feel ungrateful you feel um like you're taking something for granted that Mm -hmm. because we all remember all too well when the phone wasn't ringing quite so much or when the year wasn't quite so full quite so soon at least I do you know Mm -hmm. and it's like cry me a river you know, mm-hmm. at, at least that's how I feel a lot of times. And I don't think that's totally 
healthy. Oh, (laughs) absolutely not. The opposite of saying no thank you is not necessarily entitlement, but I feel like we can tell ourselves that it is. And um, a lesson that I have learned, I guess this would be perfect uh, to talk about right now, is instead of saying no thank you, I like to say, I wish I could, please ask me next time. That is a good one. Because, you know, if you're just like, no, thank you. Pass. <laughs> Pass. <laughs> that maybe isn't the best plan, but like, I really wish I could. I hope it. you ask me next time. <laughs> <laughs> that feels better. That feels better. That was fabulous advice. And you know how? who else has tons of fabulous advice? Who? Our listeners. <laughs> So we, oh, them. Oh, right. Okay. We asked on Instagram about this phenomenon of um, saying no. And we got some fabulous responses that I would love to share for us to discuss. Um, First comes from Jessica Finley Yang, who I absolutely love and adore. Hi, Jessica. Uh, When I was actively gigging in the Midwest, there were three C's I considered when taking a gig, the caliber of the group, the compensation, and the commute. If two of the three categories were adequate, I usually said yes. Now that I'm a few years older, I've added a few more C's, the colleagues and acquiring childcare. Mm -hmm. I started doing this system after a harrowing five and a half hour drive that started after one concert ended at 5 p.m. to attend a morning rehearsal the next day in a different city. 10 p.m. Uh oh. No, no. No. It's time to say no. Time to say hell no. (laughs) You need your sleep. (laughs) Oh my gosh, that does sound harrowing. And yes, Mm -hmm. I guess some lessons you just have to learn the hard way. Like sometimes it seems like not that big of a deal until it's time to drive six hours at 10 p.m. No. Pass. <laughs> <laughs> that doesn't even get an I wish I could. No. <laughs> Please ask me next. That's just a no. Right. <laughs> okay. From K. Definitely has been tricky. Being married to a non-musician has helped me find a balance of knowing I need to accept quality opportunities over the quantity of opportunities got to be home and enjoy time with family still extremely difficult though this has changed for me too since covid Mm -hmm. i feel so much more possessive of my family time and my time at home Mm -hmm. because i really did thrive in quarantine (laughs) so i you know is it worth it to do this gig? Maybe. Whereas before I would have said, yeah, I have to do that gig. Like maybe it's a maybe now. And I have to think about how much commuting that will take. And I actually have said no more this year uh, to far out of town gigs that would have taken me back and forth and back and forth multiple, Mm -hmm. like four or five times in a week. Mm -hmm. I have had said, I have said no way more this year than I ever have in the past. Just because I need to be home with my wife and my dog. Yeah. Well, and Kay brings up a great point of those non-music friends being so important in 
uh, unpacking what we have normalized in terms mm-hmm. of some of the less healthy aspects of this career. Sometimes you just need someone on the outside to go, what? My friend Matthew is that for me. Sometimes he'll just mm. be like, that is wacky. That's not normal. We're not <laughs> doing that. <laughs> um, they, we had a guest speaker in a faculty meeting and she talked about the importance of your no committee or having a cohort of people who you can basically bounce ideas off of and they'll be like, no, that is not a good use of your time. And mm-hmm. Yeah, I love that. So Christina, in responding to the difficulty of saying no, wisely says, short emails are easier than long emails. Half the time I craft a long guilt-written explanation of why I'm saying no, then I delete 90% of it to get it down to three sentences. Uh, yeah, just, you don't need to explain if you're declining. I would say, okay. Yeah. Most of the time you shouldn't, most of the time you should not. Yeah. You don't have to justify. No, no. We're here hypocritically empowering you to not justify. (laughs) And we're practicing. No, 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 we're not doing that. (laughs) Um, Dylan says, for many years, I said yes to as many gigs and opportunities as possible that came my way so much so that it meant I couldn't dedicate enough undivided attention, which then turned into a series of guilt and angst ridden weeks or months. Learning how to be at peace with myself for turning down a gig was tough, but absolutely critical for my own wellness. It enables me to explore other projects and gigs that feel more fulfilling than chasing pavements. It also meant that I could step back and support my colleagues and their own endeavors as well. Yeah. Well said. Yeah. Well said. Absolutely. And it leaves space for other people to have opportunities too. Yes, I completely agree. (laughs) And I'm sorry, Dylan, we're not laughing at you. I just said the same sentence like eight times because I kept messing it up. She really did. And then she kept coming back and saying, yes, I completely agree. I really agree. agree. Yes, I really agree. That's a little peek behind the curtain of post-production. <laughs> I wish you would have left all that in. That was funny. <laughs> Gosh. Uh, but speaking of production, as we wrap things up uh, and head to our interview with Viola Vilmson, you will not hear my voice in this interview. And that is because we taped this during finals week and I woke up to a beautiful blanket of several inches of snow in the Pacific Northwest and she's in Europe obviously so it had to be very early and there had been this like public safety thing no not the one that's been in the media (laughs) and um I tried to go to work and it was like eight miles an hour and then every exit I tried to take was closed and I just called Khalid and I said, it's not happening. Can you do this by (laughs) yourself? And she said, sure. So I missed out. We don't like to do that, but this was such like an extenuating circumstance. She, y'all, she tried real hard. She was in that car. How far normally like a 10 minute drive and it took you like 45 minutes yeah it's like a seven minute drive and it i would have been late 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 
And <laughs> on the other side of the interview was a final, so we couldn't push it back. But anyway, I'm so grateful to the two of you for being flexible. And I just, yeah, we don't like to do it. It's the only time in the history of the podcast we've ever done it. Mm -hmm. Even when Steve Vaki only had your voice, but that's because I was sick, so I didn't talk, but I was there. She was there, y'all. She was there. I was there. Um, <laughs> but so, yes, please, please forgive my absence. Uh, blame winter weather and logistics. I don't know. Well, we had a good time without you. Well, yeah, let's get to it. Chemical City Double Reads is a full-service double read shop specializing in the sale of instruments, cane, accessories, and sheet music. Double Read Dish listeners can enjoy free shipping with code DRDISH. Visit them in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, or online at www.chemicalcityreads.com. Hey, oboists! Have you ever found it difficult to sort out when and how to find a new oboe or English horn? Oboe Chicago streamlines the process, providing personal and professional consultation and a large selection of lovely instruments. The process feels comfortable and thorough. Selection includes Effleurie of Paris, Howarth of London, Covey Oboes, and Fox products. For a current listing of Oboe Chicago's selection, please visit www.obochicago.com. For a credit of $100 towards shipping, mention Double Read Dish when you call or email Shauna. That's oboechicago.com. We are over the moon excited to welcome to the podcast Viola Wilmsen, principal oboe of the Deutsche Symphony Orchestra Berlin and professor of oboe at the Hans Eisler Conservatory. No, I yeah. screwed it up. No, no, that's perfect. Hochschule. Okay. In German, it's Hochschule, so I don't know what it is. Conservatory, maybe. Cool yeah. music. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you very much. So we usually start the interview by asking how you got started with the oboe, but I would maybe like to skip that step a little bit, and let's talk about more recent stuff. So I would like to actually start with um, when did you know that you were going to be a professional musician? Yeah, so actually, I, I knew it already quite soon. I, I remember when I was 16, something that I, I already decided, definitely, I'm going to be a musician. But um, actually, I, I started with several different instruments. So I, at first, I started with piano and then trumpet, and then I, and I played violin. And then quite late, I was 12, I found the oboe. And I wasn't sure what, what exactly to do, but I, I really knew that I, I, I really wanted to be a musician. So that was maybe when I was 16. Yeah. And then I really focused on the oboe. I, I decided, um, and I focused on the oboe and, um, yeah, really tried to work hard for this goal to reach it. Would you talk us through your, uh, education and your training and how you got to where you are today? Yes. Yes. So I, I started, um, in the, in Lübeck, Conservatory of Lübeck with Dieter Jonas, um, which was quite, quite far from my place, but still in Germany. So where I was born. Um, and there I did a diploma. So I spent there four years and then I went one year, um, with an Erasmus to Jacques Tisse to Paris to the Conservatory CNSM, mm -hmm. um, and had their uh, lessons with Jacques Tisse and also a little bit with David Walter. 
Um, and then afterwards, I um, actually, yeah, I directly afterwards, I I won the the Sony competition, the Sony Obo competition in two thousand and nine, and this was really the beginning of uh, where everything just uh, went quite naturally. Um, I I got. Uh, Right away, my, my first job in the orchestra at the Opera House in, in Berlin, the Deutsche Oper Berlin. I got the principal over there when I was quite quite young. And then I decided to take a master um, with Dominic Wollenweber at the Hans Eisler Hochschule in Berlin. So then I, I did the master um, during my, my first job, my first position. Yeah, that was it. So I, I would say that I was quite lucky to have three um, really fantastic uh, teachers, three really different teachers, also with the style. So I had a German, German system a little bit and also French. And um, so I was really lucky to um, to have all this input. And um, yeah, I, I was I, I was really happy to get this chance. There's so much in there I want to ask you about, but first I want to ask you about what are, what were the um, differences between studying in Germany and studying in France? And maybe what are the skills that you took away from uh, both traditions? Yeah. So it's hard to say um, the traditions, of course, there are still differences, but I think it's, it's mixing a lot uh, or it, it, it started mixing a lot in the last years, which is good, I think. And it's, of course, it's very individual and it, it depended a lot on the teacher. So I wouldn't say that Dieter Jonas, my first teacher in Germany, has a very German uh, way to play. <laughs> but, um, and of course, Jacques Tis, yeah, it's totally different, but I don't know if it's the, the French, <laughs> French way, um, exactly, but it's just that I learned so many things, um, from him and of course from from Jacques I, I learned a lot a lot a lot about um, oboe technique but also a lot about flexibility and and all this mm-hmm. French style of course I, I did a lot of Cupra and all this French music so um, that was just great and afterwards with Dominic um, with Dominic Weinberg we, we did a lot for orchestra yeah he really p- prepared me for the editions in orchestra and there I thought, okay, now I have a little bit of the German, the German sound and what, what we call it. I don't know what it is exactly, but what, what people say, okay, this is German, German style or German sound. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That was it. Okay. So I need to ask you about the Sony oboe competition, because that is such a huge international competition and I want to hear about your experience preparing for competing and placing first (laughs) yeah of course so um I I did a lot a lot of competitions and I started uh, quite early with all these competitions um so yeah I think with 16 I I did I I spent one year in in um um uh, in Britain and um, in Great Britain, and there I did also a competition, also with piano, with end oboe, and I was just used to this competition all the time. Yeah, and I was also used to giving a lot, a lot of concerts. So this performance, I think, this was also a positive side of my education. Yeah, I, I just I experienced a lot on the stage. Yeah, and I did a lot of co- competition. And for Sony, I just focused very, very much. I focus very much, and it's it's always a good um, experience and a good um, 
yeah, it's just a good goal you have to practice and to to prepare perfectly this uh, this huge program. Yeah, but of course it's also luck. Yeah, you also need a little bit of luck. <laughs> yeah, and so I had this. I had luck at at this moment. Um, but I also had some, some, you know, I did a lot of competitions and not every competition I won. So afterwards, for example, I thought, okay, I do another one and another one. But there are, I already had my job at the orchestra, which was a lot, a lot to play. So it's a big opera house in Berlin and we play, we play nearly one, one opera every night, another one. So and big stuff like Strauss and Wagner and um, exhausting stuff and I tried to prepare beside some competitions and it didn't work out so I also had some experiences where I thought oh shit it, 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 well, what did I do and all this energy you know it's so much energy to prepare for such a big competition and um, yeah it, it costs you a lot but I would just say I'm, I'm lucky that I didn't give up and that I just continued that's yeah. a really good point because I think a lot of people um, view, you know, myself included, it's this toxic view of uh, progress as linear and it's just going to keep getting better and better and better and better. In a, in a way it does, but it's never the way that you expect. So exactly. your story about, you know, winning this massive international oboe competition and then having to balance your full-time job and preparing for other competitions and having to, you know, it, in the end you have to sacrifice something and it, and it changes kind of your, your view of, or at least it changes my view of my place in the world and, you know, what I am able to actually do <laughs> in 24 hours. Can you talk to us a little bit about that, about, you know, adjusting to having to settle in a job and kind of letting go of some of these other ambitions that you may have had? Yes, of course. Yeah, it's a, it's a good um, it's a good point. Yeah, I also thought about, uh, wow, what, what would have happened if I didn't want this orchestra job as early? Um, then I would have had the chance to do maybe other things aside. But at this point now where I am, I think it's it was exactly the... <laughs> the right thing and this is also one one thing I, I can just tell my students I, I would recommend just to be patient <laughs> and because yeah I, I remember that time when, when I was studying that I always thought oh my god I, I wish I have so many doubts and I really wish to have a good job and in a good orchestra and I want that and this and and now it's it's all yeah I I all I reached it I I reached what I what I was wishing for uh, I mean I'm very lucky but um yeah it all worked out but I I had to be patient also mm-hmm. um yeah and and I think that a development it's never it's never that you just get better and better of course there are also it's it also goes down a little bit sometimes yeah it's it's natural we're not we're not machines and we're musicians and this is good and this is good that we are sensitive and that we have we also have bad days and it's it's totally natural I also think as a as a teacher <laughs> um it's okay sometimes I think oh shit I, I didn't when I play before my students then I think oh, that wasn't good yeah but sometimes it's also not that bad for the students that, that they see okay um <laughs> I'm also struggling because this is hard it's just natural that we have to um, work for our goals. Yeah, we have to work hard, and it's not that easy sometimes. So this is totally, 
this is totally natural, I think. Yeah. And the idea that we strive for perfection, but we're only human. I mean, it's so painful. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Humanity is so painful. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Can you tell us about um, the day of winning the Sony competition? What was that day like? Oh, there was... Yeah, I can't tell. <laughs> you don't remember? It was a blur. No, no, I remember, but it was just crazy. Yeah, oh. it was, yeah incredible. <laughs> yeah, it was, was over the moon, of course. I was super happy. What was the repertoire? Um, I played Martino Concerto in the final. Mm. Yeah, and before I played Strauss, so it was quite a tricky one. I just mm. remember, yeah, playing Couperin and Schumann and Berio, of course, and uh yeah Strauss concerto and at the end it was Martin with with the orchestra it was really nice yeah I would love to hear more about the details of your preparation process because that is an insane program so how did you put all that together yeah of course it's important that you start early <laughs> that you start in time <laughs> not three months before the competition so <laughs> Um, and then I always recommend my students to do a planning, a real planning for just, yeah, weeks. And you just uh, write down, okay, in this week I, I do this. It's quite complicated because you have to, to be, yeah, work on pieces parallel. You, you can't do it just one piece and then afterwards another, another one. It's, it's just not possible. And you have to try to get a good plan, <laughs> be organized and make a good planning for you for the preparation for the competition and and start early enough and then of course the experience is super important yeah so that you have to, that you had the chance to to play the the final piece with orchestra before yeah so this is so important because in this situation it's it's so difficult and um so different as well so it's really good that when when you have the chance to to organize and and plan in advance this is really important do you do anything special for preparing your mind for this kind of high pressure performance? Yeah. Um of course I had some years to experiment what what, what works and um for for the last years I just um found out that yeah, I have a little a little planning for me. So I I try to um count back from the moment of the concert starts or the whatever um so and then i i count back and i i just count okay how many minutes do i need to to go on stage to be calm how many minutes before that so maybe when the concert starts at eight so 10 before eight i i be already prepared and totally um totally able to play so my read is good my my oboe everything is is prepared so 10 minutes before that maybe i plan some time to go to the toilet or get dressed i don't know what what else yeah and then if i have some time before if i'm there in in advance then i um i do a little meditation something or a little breathing exercise um something to to calm me down if i'm if i'm getting nervous yeah so um they are found out that it's quite good to do some yeah breathing exercises and yeah just a little bit of time for myself to sit down somewhere close my eyes and just be try to to feel <laughs> and um be with myself yeah 
this is good. But I try really to to plan it um, quite good uh, in time so that I because it doesn't help if later on you get stressed because oh now we have to go on stage quick quick. Um, it doesn't help. So it has to be very good um, organized before. Yeah. So and um, as you know, I did my my husband is a yoga teacher, so he <laughs> he taught me a little bit of meditation and um, some yoga um moves which which it can help quite good before a concert to calm down and then it's a lot about um joy actually it's a lot about looking forward to it because it's it's the main subject why we go on stage it's it's <laughs> it's because yeah we we love what we do or i hope so <laughs> we, should, we should love <laughs> what we do <laughs> yeah most of the time exactly and then of course in the last in the last minutes we just should think of okay Great. Finally, I mean, often it's that we prepare a concert very, very for a very, very long period. And then finally, it comes to the point where we can play. And then, um, yeah, it's just joy or a lot of joy. It should be. It should be. <laughs> yeah. Do you, do you practice that uh, joyfulness when you're preparing for a recital or a performance? Do you incorporate that into your, your practice sessions? Um, no, not. I wouldn't say that. No, not really. Okay. But what I think is good to to practice, um, what I experienced as well with my students is that we practice a little bit the uh, going on stage, mm. because um, this is sometimes a thing we don't we don't know, <laughs> or we actually we don't realize how we how we go on stage, mm -hmm. and this also has a big impact on our playing. I think not only on how how we. Um, how uh, how the audience sees us but also how how we feel because when we go on stage self-confident and with um joy then we also we will also play better and we'll feel better more more self-confident but if we think before oh i don't know i didn't practice enough maybe and oh, i'm not sure i'm scared <laughs> then it's not only the audience which will notice but it's also that we ourselves don't feel that good yeah so mm -hmm. and this is this is a thing we we can practice i think and it's important to practice going on stage and feeling comfortable feeling well just just um speaking about a few things for example how we if if we look at the at the audience directly for me for example i for me it's difficult to look in there in the eyes of the audience because then sometimes i think oh, she, she looks she looks weird what is she thinking <laughs> so for me it's better just to look over the audience yeah? <laughs> <laughs> and look at, at the end of the hall yeah and and stay a little bit with me something for some people it, it it's the other way around i don't know you have to find out individually what suits you but these are just some things we can we can um yeah we can try to to find out before before the situation that's a really, that's a really good point. And, you know, performance anxiety for me is, you're right, so, so intertwined with the unknown. Uh, I don't know how this hall is going to sound. I don't know how the audience is going to react. I don't know the layout of the stage. I don't know where to stand. Da, 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 da. So, you know, actually preparing for the non-musical parts of the performance seems like a really great strategy to just be so grounding. 
uh, yeah, exactly. It it definitely helps. Yeah, then you can already fix some things which which are <laughs> in in advance and not everything on on the stage. Yeah. Yeah. Do you find that there has been a difference in the way that you prepare for an orchestral audition than for a soloistic competition? Yeah, maybe a little. Yeah, a little difference, maybe. Yeah. For orchestra, I would say, yeah, the first three minutes count so much. So um, it's also very important how you how you get into the hall. Yeah, and the whole orchestra sits there and and um, watches you. Um, but of course, for orchestra, we say it really has to be perfect, perfect, <laughs> so that you have any chance because there are maybe twenty others or more. Mm-hmm. Um, and for a solo concert, of course, it's it's another. It's a little bit different. Yeah. I would say, but I wouldn't change. I, I mean, I wouldn't change so much uh, playing. Some people say, okay, Mozart concerto for, for the audition, you play like this. And for a solo concert, uh, concerto, you can play a bit more free or whatever. I, I wouldn't say this. No, it has to be authentic. Of course, you have to be authentic also in an orchestra audition. And also, yeah, you can't change. You can't think, okay, for this orchestra, maybe they want this. And <laughs> for the other one, I, I change a little bit and I play more, more dark or more this or whatever. No, I would say just be yourself because they, they will also notice if you play authentic or, or not. Yeah, it's like the same when you like meet a new person and you're thinking, is this person just saying what I want them to, <laughs> what they think yeah. I want to hear or is this what they really think? Mm. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> yeah, you, I think you'll notice, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, a thousand percent. So let's switch gears a little bit and talk about your teaching. You are, it seems, a very passionate teacher. And I would like to hear more about, um, you know, your your pedagogical style and what you think is important for students to uh, learn before they get out into the real world of performing and teaching. Yes. Yeah, of course. Um, so first of all, of course, we have this technical basics that we all need. And I think it's quite a, quite a big goal already in oboe playing because it's quite hard just to reach this, to have the stability and the, um, the flexibility, the freedom then just to have a good basis of everything, a round sound, homogeneous, good intonation uh, flexible playing feeling comfortable with it uh, don't be too uh, too stiff and too um, uh, much under pressure so it's already a lot <laughs> a lot to work on but um, uh, beside that um, I think it's very important for for students in in our time to to get a uh, education well um, through all the styles and all the um, different um, music, yeah, musicology. So I always um, try to to let them play, of course, a lot of baroque things in a historical informed way. Then new music, um, which is also a very good exercise. So I I try that they have just the chance to to learn from everything, yeah, from every uh, style and be very good prepared for for later for mm-hmm. for their job, yeah. 
because it, got, it gets more more and more important in these in these times. I think, yeah, to to have a um, a different um, to have a big a big range just of different different articulations, different colors, different yeah that they really know how to play different styles. Yeah, we can't play everything <laughs> everything the the same in the same way. So. Mm-hmm. We have to to make a big big difference between the between the styles, and this is important for them to learn how how we play a French French Baroque and the Italian Baroque, and mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, of course all this new music um, techniques. It's it's important for everyone to just have an idea. Are there any um, favorite pieces or etude books that you like to assign to learn? those different skills um generally i i think that it's um we can also learn a lot from repertoire by just playing our standard repertoire or a new unknown repertoire but we can learn a lot from this and we can just make an exercise out of everything (laughs) nearly yeah when when you just play it slowly or in another articulation when you have articulation problems then just play it legato and try to have a very good combination with your fingers and um legato is it's a very very uh, um hard thing you can work work on very long <laughs> yeah and intonation and the, for the position for example we, we always have some troubles and finding a good position for the high register so we can work on all this with the repertoire actually but um, usually I try to, with my bachelor students, we, we try to make some scales um, and some yettle. It's called, it's a saxophone studies, um, yettle. I don't know it. Oh, okay. <laughs> I'm going to go buy it immediately. Okay. It's just <laughs> scales and, and different intervals with different articulations. Cool. So it's a good basis, just, um, yeah, the saxophone players, they play it, they play it all the time. <laughs> cool so it's, I'm it's, writing a, it down. it's a technique a technique thing and then of course you can do um some etudes uh, like fairling or gilet or whatever of course um so this is also a good thing but it's not necessary i think it's not necessary or i i decided individually some for some people it's good to have this for some people they just don't like it <laughs> they just don't do it <laughs> and then we have to find <laughs> other ways <laughs> then we have just they have to work on Mozart for 10 lessons and do it all with Mozart. So it doesn't. Right. Doesn't it's the same stuff, but just whatever yeah. they are planning on bringing. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I'm laughing, but I'm also crying. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. That's a good tip about the Yettle saxophone book. I'm going to go find it. Okay. Great. Yeah. Cool. <laughs> So you are one of these very special um, musicians who has a solo career, a teaching career, an orchestral career, and a recording career. Um, <laughs> how do you do that? How do you balance all of that? <laughs> yeah, good question. <laughs> Actually, <laughs> yes. Yeah, so um, I think I I worked a lot. I worked a lot um, since I was quite young um, because I really wanted to do this. I really, I was so passionate about it and I I just love to do music. And so 
I did nothing else. <laughs> so this is my my thing. It's always my husband always laughs at me because I I didn't do anything else. <laughs> just, just music. Yeah. So um, that's it. Um, so this is one thing. I re- work really hard, of course. Um, but uh, I'm also I I would say that I'm quite efficient in what I'm doing. I I'm, I'm not practicing a lot. I, I mean, I used to practice, of course. But at the moment, um, it's quite hard to um, to find time to practice. Um, but if you want practiced and <laughs> had a good education, I think it's it's it works okay. Yeah, <laughs> I would say. Um, yeah, but of course, it's it's always hard. It's always hard to find find a good balance. Yeah. So now I'm doing I'm doing half time. I'm doing half time my orchestra and half um, the professorship. And um, of course, I have my solo things um, beside, and I have my family, yeah, which is quite a lot. Yeah, <laughs> but it's it's great. It's great to have um, to um, have some other thoughts um, and uh, yeah, to have some different things in <laughs> life. Yeah, now finally, <laughs> your <laughs> husband makes fun of you, and my wife makes fun of me because I also don't do anything else. <laughs> <Really>? <laughs> Um, I adore your recording of the Pavel Haas suite and the Hans Gall Sonata and the Slavicki. That recording, Slavitsky, sorry, it's Slavitsky, right? Yeah, I think yeah. so. Yeah, thank you. Uh, thank you so it's much. Stunning. It's absolutely stunning. How do you find um, projects? Like, what are your criteria for? um finding projects that because obviously your time is extremely limited and valuable so how how do you prioritize you know okay these are the pieces that I'm going to record and these are the pieces that I'm going to put my energy in yeah so with this disc it was just that I love this piece Pavel Haas the Pavel Haas suite it's just a yeah it is probably the best piece yeah that we have yeah and I was just so deeply um, touched emotionally <laughs> by this piece so that I thought, okay, also with my pianist, with Kimiko Imani, we thought, okay, we really want to get it on a disc. So that was the, the beginning of this project. And then we just thought, okay, which can suit this program and which is nice with it, which comes with it. And then we found the Gal and the Slavitsky, of course. And yeah, we put something beside, but the, I would say the heart of this disc is the, the Pavel Haas for us. Yeah. Are there any um, maybe lesser known oboe pieces that you wish people played more often? Yes, of course. There are, actually, there are a lot of oboe pieces. Um, and I just, um, in actually in COVID times, I, I did some research and um, I found really a lot of pieces. Um, for example, from the balcony, uh, from ba- Balkan music. So um, Bulgarian and Romanian and um, yeah, this this area um, there, I found a lot of pieces, great pieces. So for example, the Mihalovici, which is now also on the movie competition, which which I was happy about it. So um, there are a lot of pieces, yeah, um, which which people don't know and. Yeah, but this is maybe in the next project. So I oh yeah, too much. Don't don't tell us yet. Don't tell us. Keep us on the hook. 
<laughs> well, I can't wait to hear your next project because that is so <laughs> exciting. I love discovering new pieces. <laughs> we should all know. Yeah. yeah, that's great because yeah, you know, it's really a shame. Yeah, we're we're not an instrument where we have uh, plenty and and too too many things. But but there are some people, uh, some pieces we don't know, and or we we know but we don't play. So, <laughs> for example, the the um. The Grand Val concerto I played in last summer at IDRS. Yeah, I think it's really such a it's such such a beautiful concerto, but nobody plays it, nobody knows it. So right. this is really a shame. Yeah, right. we should do it more often. <laughs> <laughs> so you earlier mentioned when we were talking about balance, um, you mentioned your family, and you are also a mom. So I would love to hear more about your experience being uh, an oboist and a mom and um how you merge those two worlds together yeah yeah as i already said um i'm very efficient so yeah <laughs> <laughs> and you have to be very efficient because otherwise it it wouldn't work so um yeah i have two kids and and then a third one on on the way so at the moment so um it changes a lot <laughs> it changed it changed already a lot my life um, but of course, it's very fulfilling, and, and it, it's just great to um, yeah to have to have to have uh, this um, yeah. But uh, yeah, it's it's uh, yeah. You need to be efficient and very organized, I think, to to manage. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and and you have to, of course, I I wouldn't be able to do it all alone. So I have a lot of support. My husband is is very often at home. He's a yoga teacher so um he's quite flexible and um he cares a lot literally with the kids huh? he's literally flexible yeah yeah because he's a yoga teacher <laughs> yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's true <laughs> i'm sorry very that was terrible <laughs> very flexible yeah exactly <laughs> go ahead sorry i can't help myself <laughs> That was good. <laughs> yeah. Um, and we also have my parents in the city. So that's great. The kids have their grandparents and they care a lot. And so they leave me all my, my free room. And it's great because every time I get a, I get a call or a, um, a request, can you do this? Or can you come to this festival? Then I'm always, oh, I don't know. And then my husband, yeah, let's go there. Yeah, that's fun. <laughs> so this is quite good. <laughs> that's fantastic he sounds so supportive yeah that's great and it's important otherwise i don't know how i would be able to to manage or or besides yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah i would love to talk about reads if that's okay yes definitely do you make your own still or or are you yes. you yes great i do my reads but i have a very good machine <laughs> Cool. Um, I have the, the Swiss, the Bucher, the Markus Bucher machine since uh, my first job. So already since 2010, I bought it and I'm very happy with it. Um, and I do a lot of reads. Yeah, actually, I do a lot of reads. And I think this is so important. Yeah, reads are very, very important. And um, I also have my, yeah, my, of course, well, through all these years, I have my, my technique and I just... Um, I think it's very important to, I, I work very much in advance. So mm -hmm. when I know that I have a big, a big thing in two or three months, then I already prepare the reads for this. 
and I put them aside. And um, so I'm saving all the time. <laughs> I'm, I'm saving reads all the time. And then I do new ones. And, and at the end, I see, okay, which one works for one of the new ones or the old one three months ago. So <laughs> I'm, um, I'm trying to organize um, reads very, very properly. Yeah. And it costs a lot of time, of course. Um, I mean, yeah, as you said, my, my time, I'm, I'm quite efficient. But when I, when I work something on the oboe, then it's mostly reads and, and less, less practicing. It's it's our life, unfortunately. It just takes so much time. Um, it's so hard, but but we need it. We just need good reads. It's um it's so important. Yeah. What is your um list of priorities? What makes a good read? Yeah, so I I make them quite slowly. So um I tie two times, for example, um and then I leave them several days um before I tie the second time and then. I again I leave them a little bit um and yeah I mean I don't I don't gouge because I don't have the time I buy I, I buy gouge and shaped cane and I just tie and put them in the machine and afterwards I I do a little bit with my knife afterwards mm -hmm. and I see yeah but I do it quite slowly um to let them time and um a lot in advance yeah of course so so that I don't get into stress and pressure right before the concert or days before the concert because this would just cost me too much nerves no. um how many reads would you feel comfortable having in your read case that work going into a major concert oh I always take too much reads too many reads yeah. <laughs> I, I I have a read case with 50 reads so I always have this with me and then yeah I mean this is crazy you don't need 50 reads <laughs> but just in case you know then I feel better just yeah. in case the first 49 break yeah exactly you never know what happens to an oboe player so you have to be prepared <laughs> no but it's also um yeah uh, yeah also when you travel you don't know yeah it's it's just good and a very good thing is i i love old reads mm -hmm. so i really keep old reads when i have a very good read a concert read and i think okay now it's really dead then i keep it and then maybe months later <laughs> it's gonna work one time but only one time <laughs> when i put it in water you know and maybe this saves my life yeah it's it's That's possible so awesome so I, I really keep good reads. Uh, I keep them. So they, they die. <laughs> in I mean, nearly, but then they, yeah, you can just, what is it? And then you get one last shot out yeah. of it? <gasps> yeah, sometimes. Yeah, yeah, you should try. I will. <laughs> yeah, I definitely do it. I mean, it's not, not for orchestra because then they, they are maybe not, they're, they're too easy or too, too flexible. But for, for solo or chamber music, sometimes it's the best. They're the best, exactly. Yeah. That's such a great <laughs> <tip>. <laughs> Totally going to do that. <laughs> so speaking of anything can happen, um, do you have any like crazy things that have ever happened to you on stage? Or are you just so prepared all the time that it, it never happens because you have thought of everything? <laughs> What a question. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Um, no, I just remember one. I mean, you see, I'm very good organized, huh? Hmm? <laughs> no, I'm joking. Um, I just remember one time when I was a um, a student in school, and I was in in a school in England. I had a competition there to prepare. And um, the director of the school sent me with a taxi to the repetition for this competition, which was quite far away and cost, it cost a lot of money. And I sat in this taxi and I had forgotten my oboe. <laughs> so this was really embarrassing. And then in the rehearsal, I sang with the pianist. <laughs> <laughs> and we, just, we, we were just talking about tempi and all this stuff, but I just sat there and I had forgotten my oboe. So this was really, really bad, uh, really embarrassing for me. Yeah, maybe the most embarrassing situation. Um, yeah. This is yeah. So <laughs> but later on, I won the competition. So it was okay for the for the head of the, the school. So he was happy. <laughs> yeah. Did you say, I'm really sorry I forgot my oboe, but... No, actually, I didn't tell him. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I just said, yeah, the rehearsal went very well. Oh, good. Yeah. <laughs> it did. Yeah. It worked out, so, at least, <laughs> at the end. That's amazing. Thank you for sharing that. <laughs> Don't tell them, okay? Okay. <laughs> Your secret's safe with me. Um, can you tell us of, um, that was fantastic. That was a fantastic, embarrassing memory. Is there, um, a special performance in a good way that you would like to share a memory of with us? Um, I mean, yeah, as I already said, um, the, the last summer was quite exciting for me because it was um, playing at IDRS, um, this Grand Concerto. I really enjoyed it. And it was a little bit like an adventure for me because it was my first time in the US. So wow! um, I was really excited. <laughs> <laughs> and just before that, I had some wonderful chamber concerts in Germany where I played a new piece by Kit Armstrong with Kit Armstrong together, a trio, which I can really recommend, Kanonische Sonate, um, Kit Armstrong and Franziska Hölscher. I played with them together. And these are very, very nice experiences, them both, um, especially because now I had to stop playing over because of my pregnancy. So <laughs> these are the last or, yeah, nearly the last concerts I had, um, which I remember um, and which I really enjoyed a lot. Yeah. It was just, yeah, very much fun and uh, nice atmosphere. And I, I really enjoyed it a lot. Yeah. That's wonderful. That's beautiful. Is, uh, was it um, when you came, so you came to the U.S. for the first time and it was in Boulder, mm -hmm. Colorado, which yeah. is for us really high altitude. Is Was it for you also? Yeah. Oh. <laughs> yes. Yes, it was. It was. And I actually, I was a bit scared before. Mm -hmm. So I... I took about hundred reeds <laughs> with me. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, and at the end, an old reed worked really well. <laughs> again, again. So, yeah, I I did a lot, and I I changed a lot, and did yeah different different length and everything strength and whatever. But at the end, um, yeah, I was I was quite quite happy with with what I what I what I brought. Yeah. So it worked. It worked out, but um, but I noticed in the in the breathing, so I had to uh, take many more um, breathings than uh, usually. So this was really it was 
quite exhausting. Yeah, I, I noticed this for, for long phrasing. Yeah. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, I know you're not playing right now, but <laughs> are there any future projects that you're planning that you're excited about and would like to share with us? Yeah, actually, I I was a bit <laughs> I was a bit sad because I had to cancel so many um, concerts because of my pregnancy, and this was really a very exciting season um, actually at the moment. So I had a lot, many many Strauss concertos to play, and one William concerto and Handel concerto, and uh, one concert I was really happy and looking forward was uh, with my own orchestra. So with the Deutsche Symphony Orchestra, I would have played Strauss Concerto in the Berlin Phil. So this I had to cancel, unfortunately. Yeah. But yeah, it was so sad. But um, it's it's very nice because I, I'll do it in the season afterwards or in, in two oh, okay. years, I think. So I'm already looking forward to this. <laughs> will we to be Strauss. able to will we be able to access it on the um on the internet? I don't know. I'm I'm sh I'm pretty sure it will be broadcasted in the um in the um, radio in German radio, but I don't know in the internet. I don't I I don't know. Okay, well, I'm I'll sure. do my research. Yeah. I'll find out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, that's so so exciting. Yeah. Yeah. But but for the moment, it's really pretty a uh, different situation for me. So um, I think nobody of, of us musicians we were used to play our instruments just day by day. And since many, many, many years, since we're very little. And so this is really crazy for me now um, that I just had to stop um, playing. And so I needed some some weeks to, to get over it. <laughs> um yeah but I'm really lucky that I that I have my students and I can teach so um so I'm teaching a lot at the moment and um it's also it feels quite quite good I'm I'm really looking forward to uh, play again after after I have my my baby and um so maybe it's also healthy to have a a little break in between yeah so our favorite last question to ask is um, what is the advice that you would give to a young musician who aspires to have a career like yours? Yeah, um, good question. <laughs> I think I already talked about it a little bit before. Um, yeah, for me, for myself, I thought, okay, um, I, I, I was too, um, too often in doubt or too, too scared and always thought, okay, or uh, how is it going to work out? Or when I when I had a I mean when I had a disappointment, yeah, when something didn't work out that way I wanted it because we talked about this uh, development. It's not straight, yeah. Um, then sometimes I I was just too too disappointed, yeah. Um, but you just have to to keep going, keep going, work hard and and uh, stay focused and. Yeah, live for your dream and for your goal and really um, work for it and, and be and be confident. Yeah, uh, it's I think going on stage and playing as a musician, it's it's a lot about also mental health and well-being and feeling comfortable. And we have to do a lot for it. We have to work for it to have to have this um, self-confidence. So this is not easy. And um, therefore, it's really important to um to work hard also for this, not only oboe playing, it's also as I ex as I experienced in my life. It's not everything. 
<laughs> yeah, you also have to work on the other on the other things. It's it's also important because for me, the most important thing when I what for example when I'm sitting in the orchestra and um, in the Berlin Phil and I'm accompanying uh, uh, incredible soloists in the orchestra that I always thought, for example, the last really um, very very touching moment was when um, we played with Lars Vogt, an incredible pianist who just passed away very tragically. Um, and I thought I was so touched because he was just opening all his, uh, his um, he was op opening himself to the audience just so um, directly. Yeah, there was no curtain, nothing between. It was just giving all, everything he had and everything. So I had the impression, okay, now I know everything about him. And this is, uh, I think, what, uh, what makes us a musician. So that we just let the audience um, see and hear what's in inside. Yeah. That's wonderful. Viola, thank you so much for doing this. You are <laughs> such an amazing person. And I feel so inspired right now. We really, really appreciate. Thank you for joining us Ooh. on Double Read Dish for the last hour. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Oh my goodness. Well, we know you loved that interview with Viola Vilmsen. And uh, oh, I guess I'm doing this now. You can follow us on all the social media, uh, Facebook, Instagram, listen to us on SoundCloud, iTunes, Spotify, YouTube. Like and review. Rate and review. Like and review. We haven't gotten a new review in quite a while on iTunes. So we would love to, you know, if you wanted to boost our confidence, please feel free. Five stars only. <laughs> and Jackie, it's time to end this nerd parade. Go make reads. I agree. <laughs>